Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As I record this, I am at home this afternoon uh, due to the pandemic that surrounds us both here in Ottawa and throughout the world. These are unusual times. And while it has been traditional during this series of conversations to invite a guest to discuss the Torah portion of the week, uh, it is not possible due to the social distancing rules that we all live under. So this morning, I want to chat with you uh, about the Torah portions that will be read during the holiday of Passover. As many of you know, this is the holiday of Passover, the seven or eight day celebration of the Jewish people's exodus from Egypt. And there are numerous Torah portions that are read on the first day of Passover, on the second day of Passover, on the Shabbat, in the midst of the Passover, and on the last day of Passover. So let me give you a summary of what is read. On the first day of Passover, Jews throughout the world read from the book of Exodus in chapter 12, beginning with verse 21 through verse 51, of the bringing of the Passover offering in Egypt, the plague of the firstborn at the strike of midnight. And on this very day, it reads, God took the children of Israel out of Egypt. The reading of the second day of Passover is Leviticus 22 through Leviticus 23:44, And this Torah portion includes a list of the Moadim the appointed times on the Jewish calendar for festive celebration of our bond as a people with Adonai. The mitzvah of the counting of Omer, the 49-day countdown to the festival of Shavuot, which begins on the second day of Passover, is mentioned here. And the obligation to journey to Jerusalem to see and be seen before the face of God, as the Torah says, on the three annual pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Now, between the first days and the last days is what's known as Kol HaMoed, the intermediate days. And so I'll speak to what the intermediate days are before I speak about the Torah portions that are read in those days. Kol HaMoed, literally the weekday of the holiday, refers to the days sandwiched between the beginning and ending of Passover and Sukkot. Passover is noted in the Torah as a seven-day festival, but since the destruction of the temple, 
It has been celebrated as an eight-day festival for those living outside the land of Israel. The first two days and the last two days are full-fledged festival days, and the middle four days are called Hol HaMoed. Of course, in Israel, as in some of the more liberal denominations of Judaism throughout the world, Passover is seven days long, with the middle five being Hol HaMoed. Sukkot, through the festival of Simchat Torah, is nine days long. The first two days of Sukkot uh, and the last two days, known as Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, are full-fledged festival days, and the middle five days are Hol HaMoed. Again, in Israel and in some of the more liberal Jewish denominations, the holiday is eight days long, with Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah being condensed into one day, and therefore the middle six days being Hol HaMoed. On the full-fledged festival days, Passover and Sukkot, we are told in the Torah that these should be days prohibited from creative work, much like Shabbat. On Hol HaMoed, however, we are permitted to do many of the activities that are prohibited on the first and last day. For example, we may use electricity or drive a car, except if the intermediate day falls on Shabbat. Nevertheless, according to Jewish tradition, we try and avoid going to work, doing laundry, writing, and other activities that might be identified as creative work. Now, as I say this and speak to you, of course, um, these laws regarding the uh, Chol HaMoed are observed completely uh, by the more traditional adherents of Torah law and rabbinic law. Those who are of the more liberal persuasion, belonging to the denominations known as Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist, would certainly hold these uh, laws and observe them in a variety of different ways. Now I want to return to the Torah portions that are read during the intermediate days of Passover. On the first of the intermediate days, instructions to commemorate the Exodus by sanctifying the firstborn, avoiding leaven, eating matzah on Passover, telling one's children the story of the Exodus, and the laws regarding tefillin are read from Exodus 13, verses 1 through 16. On the second day, a portion from the parashah of Mitzvatim, Exodus 22, 24 through 23, 19 is read. And in that section, it includes the laws of the festivals. On the third of the intermediate days on which Torah is read, 
a section is describing Moses receiving the second tablets and God's revelation to God of the 13 attributes of mercy, which likewise concludes with the laws of the festivals, Exodus 34, 1 through 26, are read. And on the fourth day, the laws of the second Passover, a unique celebration which is found in Numbers 9, 1 through 14, this section of Bamidbar Numbers tells the Jewish people in the Torah that if for some reason you're unable to observe the laws as enunciated in Exodus, you can gather together um, one month later to observe the Passover rituals. On the seventh day of Passover, Jews throughout the world read the Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, which tells of how the Israelites walked through the Red Sea and were delivered uh, by God's miraculous splitting of the sea. And the Song of the Sea which has been made famous in movies uh, and is part of the ritual of all Jewish worship, known as the Mikamocha, uh, tells us about God's great glory and might. And for those Jewish communities that observe the eighth day, they read from Deuteronomy 15, verse 19, through... Deuteronomy 16, and it catalogs the annual cycle of festivals, their special observances, and the offerings brought on these days to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The eighth day special connection with the future redemption is reflected in the Haftarah, the reading from the prophets, which is Isaiah 10, verse 32, through Isaiah 12, verse now, this Shabbat will be Shabbat Chol HaMoed. And in this Shabbat, during Passover, we take a break from the sacred and the profane, from sin and sacrifice, from what fits and what is unfit. And we set aside all the things in Leviticus, that would normally be read during this week and step into another world. This week's special portion carries within it one of the most luminous and awe-inspiring images in all of the Torah. Moses, cradled gently in the hand of God, emerges from the cleft of the rock to glimpse a sight of the divine presence just as the glory of God passes by. This is found in Exodus 33, 21 through 23. This vision is one of the most unabashedly human representations of God, as can be found anywhere in the Bible. God has a face, according to the Torah, which Moses cannot see, God has a hand 
which protects Moses until the moment when God's shining presence, usually translated in Hebrew as kavod, has passed by. God has a back, which Moses glimpses momentarily, though we have precious little description of what this vision of God from behind may have looked like. Such anthropomorphism in this case, visions of God in human form, drive the classic interpreters of the Torah to distraction. They try to desperately recast these physical characteristics as metaphor and literary device rather than the touchable, tangible, actual descriptions of God's presence, which we might on their surface consider them to be. So strong is the pull of the second commandment not to create for ourselves a picture or an idol of God's physical form, that the very allusion to any human characteristic becomes the source of endless consternation and debate. It always has sat as unusual within our tradition that God is posited as an invisible and unknowable God who nevertheless has the power to affect our physical world through signs and wonders, physical manifestations. A God who harbors human emotions like compassion and anger, who has the power to carve ten divine words with a finger on the face of the stone, as is indicated in chapter 30 of Exodus, verse 18. Somehow, such completely human descriptions of the presence of God in our world can pass monster, and yet even the slightest mention of God's physical characteristics launches legions of commentators to smooth out the primitive language within the text. And yet, how can we better translate these words than to read them as they are, in the beautifully descriptive and wonderfully human way in which they were written? Let me share with you Exodus 33, verse 21 through 23. And the Eternal said, See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen Powerful, beautiful language. See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Is that the Torah's anthropomorphism of God? Or is that the biblical writer's sense? That we should read the words in metaphor 
Of course, all language is a metaphor. All description is but an illusion. We can only describe what we experience through the medium of words, which are but a shadow of the emotion-laden moments that they must try to represent. In Hebrew, the word for word is davar. It is the same as the word for thing, davar. In other words, ours is a language which even the words themselves have dimensions, mass, and weight. The question for one who reads Torah is to explore not why the Torah speaks of God in such anthropomorphic terms, but what these particular all-too-human words have come to represent. To do so, we must take stock of the context of that moment in time. Moses had just quelled the children's anger, God's anger at the children of Israel for the idolatry of the golden calf. And in the afterglow of reconciliation, Moses asked God for two things that God will continue to dwell amidst the children of Israel despite their failing. And furthermore, that Moses, having earned God's trust and admiration, might be granted a glimpse at God's eternal presence. There is, in God's response, a series of intended double metaphors, double meanings that can be read as God's double response to two of Moses' separate requests. The first one, see there is a place near me, just as the other great luminous tale of Jacob's ladder, where our wayward patriarch explains, truly the eternal is in this place and I did not know it. The word for place makom can be taken according to the rabbi's both as a name for God and as a description of a place. It is as if Hamakom, the God of Israel, answers Moses, stand with me and I will stand with you. Hamakom. The second verse, station yourself on the rock here too. There is an intended double meaning. God is called Sur Yisrael, the rock of Israel. This again is a promise of God's protection and an image of God's near, of Moses' nearness to God. The third, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand. And at that, this greatest moment of closeness, divikut, as the Hasidim called it, the moment of cleaving to God, becoming all but one with the creator and preserver of our lives at this moment of oneness, God is cradled in, Moses is cradled in God's hand. And again, there is in this an image of God's closeness to Moses and a promise of steadfastness for the children of Israel. All three of these verses from this Shabbat's Torah portion serve not simply as anthropomorphic representations of God, but as double metaphors, double responses to Moses' two separate requests, stay with the people of Israel and show me who you are. 
God's hands are a recurrent image of God's steadfast love for Israel. As in the beautiful yet enigmatic lines from Isaiah 49, 15, 16, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, your walls are ever before me. What then can we learn from the vision of God's back, which Moses is able to glimpse as God passes by? A wonderful response is a wonderfully human description found in the Talmud, that collection of lore and law which explains that what Moses saw was the knot of a leather strap, tefillin, that encircles God's head. According to the Talmud, God wears tefillin. Does that mean that God prays like human beings? No, once again, the image of the tefillin is the perfect double meaning because it carries within it the Shema, a prayer for oneness, a response to Moses' request for a moment of oneness with the Eternal One. And the prayer that follows the one-line Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Listen, O Israel, your God is one. The Biahavta prayer, which reminds us that it is we who must carry God's words with us wherever we go. But to whom would God pray and for what? The answer is found in the context of our parasha. God prays for us. This is, of course, an interpretation of how we can read the Torah on this very special day of Passover. But in addition to this powerful reading from the Torah, the Haftarah, the prophetic reading, is one of the most powerful sections of the Torah. On this day, the Shabbat of Passover, communities throughout the Jewish world will read Ezekiel 37. This section is known as Can These Bones Live? The hand of Yahweh, the breath of life, was on me. And in a rushing breath, Yahweh brought me forth and set me in the center of a valley full of bones. And he led me all around them, all around here. Very many on the face of the valley and here utterly dry. And he said to me, child of Adam, earthling, can these bones live? And I said, pillar of the world, breath of life, you know it in your heart and only you. Then God said to me, prophesy upon these bones, say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the one who breathes all life. Thus speaks the pillar of the world, the breath of life to these bones. Here, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will weave muscles on you and raise flesh upon you and form skin on you and I will give you breath and you shall live. And so you will deeply know that I am Yahweh, the breath of life. And so I was 
prophesied as I commanded, and while I was prophesying, there came a voice and said, Here a commotion, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I saw here upon them muscles. Flash arose, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then God said, Prophesy to the rushing breath of wind, prophesy, you child of earth. Say to the breathing wind, thus says the pillar of the wind, the breath of life. From the four breathing winds, come, O breath, and puff into these slain that they shall live. And so I prophesied as God commanded me, and the breath blew into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet. Overwhelming, overwhelming, vast array of strength. I'm going to read from the end of this beautiful section from Ezekiel. I will bring you to the earth of Israel, and you shall know deep in your heart that I am Yahweh, the breath of life, that I have opened your gate and roused you from your graves, my people. And I will put my breath within you, and you shall live. And I will place on your own earth, and you shall know that deep in your heart that I, the breath of life, have spoken and made it happen, proclaims the breath of life. Why Ezekiel? Why this resurrection of the Jewish people from exile in Babylonia? Why is this red on Passover? Well, I think to understand why our ancestors felt that reading of the resurrection of the Jewish people after their exile from Babylonia fit within the Seder context, we have to remember that the Seder ends, B'Shanah Habab Yerushalayim. It is a call for the return of all Israel to their ancient homeland. So this Shabbat in synagogues throughout the world, we will read of God's closeness to the Jewish people, and we will read of the eternal relationship of the people Israel to God. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this on iTunes and on the CHRI website. Shalom and have a good day. Yeah.